This morning we are in Luke chapter 19. I would encourage you to turn there if you haven't already. Some of you are probably familiar with the work of Victor Hugo, Les Miserables. Uh, Maybe you've read the book or you like me, you've seen the movie instead. Uh, It stars a man named Jean Valjean, who's the the main character in the story. And in the the beginning, you're introduced to Valjean because he's uh, leaving prison. He's been uh, serving, he served a 19-year imprisonment, uh, hard labor, uh, for stealing bread. And uh, he's released, and uh, he looks like a prisoner. Okay, he looks like somebody who's been in jail for a long time, and uh, he, he's really hardened, and uh, he's very tough, and it's hard to really break through uh, to him. And he's uh, going to town after being released, and he's, uh, it's almost like he's going door to door because he needs help. He just needs a place to stay. He's trying to get back up on his feet after being in prison. So long, he's just got nothing. And uh, door after door, just kind of closing in his face because they just kind of are intimidated by who he is. And finally, it's almost like a last resort, it feels. He goes to the church, and the bishop opens the door and, and lets him in. And uh, the scene in the movie, you see them sitting at the, the table together eating. The wife is, you can tell in her face she's very suspicious, but the husband, the bishop, is, is kind of open. And they eat together, and gives them, bishop gives them a place to stay, a room for the night. In the middle of the night, Jean Valjean gets up. You remember the story. He uh, goes downstairs, sneaks downstairs, and he steals some silverware, and he's gone. And uh, the next morning, you see the bishop and his wife. They're out gardening or something. And the wife is just like, I told you. I told you. You shouldn't. You know, the guy was trouble. And the bishop's like, okay, okay. And uh, knock on the door. Jean Valjean is back. But he's got two police officers that are escorting him. And they say that this gentleman says that you gave him this, this silverware. Is that true? And the cops are very suspicious. They're like, there's no way. This guy stole it. He's lying to us. And the bishop basically turns to him and says, I can't believe you forgot the candlesticks. And the police are like, what? And Jean Valjean is like, what are you talking about? He can't believe what he's hearing. And the priest, the bishop's like, I, you know, I gave you this silverware, but I want you to have this as well. And Jean Valjean, the cops have left, and they say, okay, all right, there's nothing, we've got nothing here. He's telling the truth, and they leave. And the priest or the bishop says to Valjean, he says, don't forget, do not ever forget that you have promised me to use the money to make yourself an honest man. And what the bishop is saying to him, I'm, I'm giving you this grace, use it to change your life. And if you've seen the movie or, or read the book, know the story. His life is radically changed after this moment in light of the grace that's been shown to him. He's a changed man. I tell you that story because we all love stories about redemption. We all love to hear somebody whose life is just a train wreck and then something happens and God does something miraculous. This is one of those stories, this story from Luke chapter 19, the story of Zacchaeus. It's a story of redemption and in a moment, I'll tell you why I think it helps us as we think about Christmas. So if you would, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to, to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. 
I must stay out your ho- I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Verse 7. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner? But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is God's word to us. Let's pray. Father God, may we in our hearts say amen, that you come to seek and to save the lost. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to behold all that you are for us. In Christ's name, amen. Would you please be seated? Some of you may be familiar with the name uh, Charles Spurgeon. He was a famous English or British uh, pastor and uh, maybe the first mega pastor. Uh, He filled uh, large auditoriums with his preaching and his ministry. And because probably because of the size and its influence, he started a um, basically what you would call a a pastor's college, uh, a a kind of a, a local seminary. Uh, where, it, where men could come who think that maybe I'm called to ministry, they could come and, and be a part of Spurgeon and, and learn from him and see if maybe that's what they should be doing. And Spurgeon would have these um, every other week or maybe once or twice a month gatherings of these men at his house. And if the weather was nice, he would take them out back. He had this big oak tree uh, back there, and he'd take them out back, and they would just sit part of the time and just kind of debrief. They, you know, if these ministers-to-be had questions, it was kind of a question and answer for Spurgeon. They'd fill, you know, what's, what's this, what about this, and so forth. But then they got to the, the hard part, the, the scary part, uh, that Spurgeon would just seemingly point to somebody and say, all right, do a sermon on blank passage. Just They had no idea who was going to be picked or what the passage was. So you just had to say something off the cuff. And so Spurgeon says to, I don't know what the guy's name was, let's say his name was Carl. Carl, talk to us about Zacchaeus. And this is what he said. Zacchaeus was of little stature, so am I. Zacchaeus was up, in a, up a tree, so am I. Zacchaeus came down, so will I. And the great thing about Zacchaeus is he's such a fun character. He's short, and he's climbing a tree. And you've been in kids' Sunday school. You know that this is just so easy, and it's so much fun to do with this passage because it's just so descriptive, and particularly at the end. Jesus comes to seek and save the lost. It has such a good memory for us. It's easy for us to know this story. There's so much fun to be had with this, but there's so much to this story of Zacchaeus uh, for us. So much, I think, this, this is teaching us uh, for us to learn about. The title of this uh, series, the next three Sundays, is uh, Why Christmas? And it's a, it's a question to remind us, why are we here? Why do we have a tree? Why do we have Advent candles? Why do we have this special day of celebrating Christ and his birth? What is so significant about that? And, of course, this passage answers by saying, we have Christmas because Jesus seeks and saves the lost. And all of us in this room know the weight and the importance of that. But there's some details in this passage I think will take on more meaning and give more color to that idea of Jesus coming to seek to save the lost. And here are the four things I want to, four principles, if you will, and then I'll unwrap them. The first is God works the impossible in impossible situations. Uh, Seek Jesus and you will find obstacles. Jesus' grace is scandalous. 
And spiritual change brings life change. Spiritual change brings life change. God works the impossible in impossible situations. Verse 2, it says, A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. And pay attention to who he was. He was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. A little further on the story, Jesus finally sees Zacchaeus, and he says he names Zacchaeus by name, identifies him, this huge crowd that Jesus is in, and he says, Zacchaeus, I want to stay at your place. I want to stay at your house. He knows who he is. He knows his reputation. He knows what he is about. He knows his stature in the community. And yet Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I want to stay with you. He knows his name, knows his story. And we think, well, of course, Jesus knows who Zacchaeus is. He's the son of God. He's, that's just who he is. But as readers, Jesus's power to, to know is not always uh, unveiled to us. And so we have instances like this where we're just kind of like shocked. He knows these details. He knows these things about the people that are around him. And here is Jesus calling out Zacchaeus to spend time with him. And we'll get into a moment of what it means that Jesus would, would be at his house as a man like this. But the reason I say that, that God does the impossible in impossible situations is because I want you to think about who Zacchaeus is. There's, there's two particular things about him that reminds us that God works in what we look at as seemingly impossible situations. He's a tax collector. Okay, not only is he a tax collector, but he's the boss of all the tax collectors. Okay, he is a Jew and he's working with the Romans who are occupying that area. Everybody hated him. Everybody disliked him. He compromised. He gave in. He's working with the enemy. Okay, and and they know that about him and he's a sinner. He's somebody that's certainly a a religious rabbi, uh, this, this messiah. Certainly he wouldn't spend time with somebody like that. That's an impossible person, and yet Jesus does that. Think about it like this to to see how maybe scandalous this is. You know, imagine the German businessmen in, in World War II, that era with Nazi Germany going on. And you're in that city where this businessman lives and, and works, and you know about this guy, and you know that he is working with the Nazis, and you know that he is trading in or giving in uh, Jewish men and women also he could prosper, also that he could be safe. You would think he's just disgusting. You would, you would just despise him. Or think about the banker or the accountant who's uh, using, getting terrorist money, he's funneling that out for the terrorists so these terrorists can uh, do their, their terrorist activities. You would despise that. You would just look down on that person so much. That's how a tax collector was viewed in this community. It was the bottom of the rung. He was just despised. And yet, Jesus comes to seek and save the lost. The second thing about this man is, too, is he's what? He's rich. He is loaded. He is wealthy. Jericho is a, is a good community. It's doing well economically. And he is wealthy. Uh, he has means. Uh, he would not be paid directly from the Romans. He would take extra taxes for himself. And you can imagine all the abuse that goes on in light of that. And this man, Zacchaeus, is very wealthy. Jesus has a lot to say about wealth and the difficulty of wealth. In chapter 18, the, the chapter before this, chapter 19, there's this rich young man. We call him the rich young ruler. And he's asking Jesus, what do I do to be saved? What is, how can I know I have eternity? And Jesus says, well, he gives him the law, basically. Have you kept the law? 
Have you kept, you get, kind of gives them the brief Ten Commandments. Have you kept these commandments? And the rich young ruler says, yeah, I've done those things. Jesus says, that's great. Sell your possessions, sell your stuff, give it to the poor and come follow me. And if you know the story, you know that he walked away sad. He walked away dejected because he had so much possessions. And then Jesus says this about the rich. He says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. He's a tax collector and he's rich and he looks like an impossible man, an impossible situation for God to work in. And yet what? Jesus comes to seek and to save the lost. What is your impossible situation? What are you looking at right now that just feels impossible for God to work in? It could be something in your spiritual life. It could be something in your family life, your work life, something about your financial future. It just feels impossible. What is that situation that you think that God is unable to work in? Sometime recently, I was reading this devotion on Psalm 121, and Psalm 121 is one of those psalms of ascent, and the beginning starts out with a question, uh, where does my help come from? The psalmist is facing this it's hard situation, difficult situation. Where is my help going to come from? Where, what's going to happen? How am I going to be rescued? How am I going to be redeemed? And the author of this devotion uh, shares uh, this. He talks about the, the, the enemy from... Finding God as our help is despair. He says we must not despair and we must not look to any source of assistance but to God alone. We must avoid despair because despair is unbelief. To despair of our situation, however taxing, however threatening, is to say that God has no help for us. That God himself has no resources with which to sustain us. And therefore there is no one to keep us and preserve us. Where do you want to give in to despair? Where are you thinking, this is not going to work. God is not going to do anything here. Maybe it's the things that you stopped praying for. Zacchaeus reminds us that God works the impossible in impossible situations because our God is a God who comes to seek and to save the lost. Number two, seek Jesus and you will find obstacles. Look at verse 3. Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Here is Zacchaeus probably, he's probably gotten the message that, that something famous or something significant about this Jesus person, his, his reputation has gone before him and he wants to see, he wants to understand who this guy is. What is, what is he about and can I find the answers to my problems, the things that I'm feeling and, and wrestling with, is there something there? And so he wants to seek him, and, and we get in those positions where we want more of God in our lives, particularly as believers. We want to see him more. But sometimes when we seek him, there's obstacles that we've got to work through to experience him and to know him. And the obstacles for Zacchaeus are, are two. The crowd is an obvious one. Uh, you go to children's Sunday school again, and they, they make fun, not make fun, but they highlight uh, that he's short and he's despised. It's not like you've got all these crowds there that Zacchaeus can come up and say to somebody, hey, do you mind if I stand in front of you? 
they are going to bump him aside. They're going to ignore him. They are not going to help him out at all. These crowds are an obstacle for him. And so he runs ahead, finds a, a sycamore tree big enough where branches are low enough and strong enough. He climbs up it, and he's got this bird's-eye view of Christ when he comes. But there's also the obstacle of his stature, if you will, that he's got to work through and, and say, I don't care. He's got to come to the point, or he did come to the point where it's like, I don't care what people think of me. Rich people, adults, do not climb trees. And Zacchaeus says, I don't care what people think. I know I'm a prominent, I know I'm powerful, I know I'm influential in this community uh, for good or for ill. I don't care. I'm going to climb this tree because I want to see him. I want to know him. I want to understand more who he is. Obstacles that people encounter in seeking Jesus is not new to Zacchaeus when we get here. Uh, You go to chapter 18, Jesus tells this parable of this widow who is seeking justice. And this judge would not give it over and over and over again. She comes to him, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice. And finally, he gives in. She worked through her obstacle. Jesus is on the outskirts of Jericho before we we get into the the, the city here with Zacchaeus. And he's got this crowd and these people are are following Jesus. And there's this blind beggar that's on the side of the road. And he hears or comes to understand that Jesus is coming. He cries out for mercy for Jesus. And the crowds are like, shut up, please be quiet. We're trying to, you can't be saying that kind of stuff. And the beggar just gets louder and louder and louder. And finally, Jesus gives him attention. Seek Jesus, and sometimes you're going to have to work through some obstacles to find him and to know him, and that shouldn't surprise us. What obstacles are you having to work through? It could be busyness. You want to seek him, you want to know him, but I'm just so busy, especially now. You know, it's the end of the December, Advent, Christmas, gifts, celebrations, all this stuff. Busyness is a distraction for you, an obstacle. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's uh, something more personal. You're feeling burned out, feeling overwhelmed. What are those obstacles? If you were here with us this past Wednesday night, we talked about one of those obstacles is familiarity. I think familiarity with Christ is an obstacle to seeking Christ. And what I mean by that is you, you know, you're so used to the gospel. You know it so well, so familiar with the Bible, that you kind of take him for granted. Imagine you move to a new neighborhood and you take your dog out for a walk and you're seeing all these new houses and new landscaping and new places and you get to this one house and it's got this incredible garden and you're just mesmerized. I mean, you have to stop and your dog is pulling on you, wants to keep going, but you stop and you look at this garden. It's amazing. It just captures your attention, excited about it. You want to go home and tell your spouse and days go by and you walk up and you see that garden and it's just amazing. And weeks go by, you, you walk by that garden, but you don't stop. You let the dog keep leading you away, and you're not as anxious to talk about it when you get home. Weeks continue to go by, and you just pass by that garden. It's there, but you just kind of don't take it in. And then months go by, and you just don't even realize the garden is there. Familiarity with Christ is a good thing in the sense that you know his redemption, you know his love, you know his forgiveness, you know his grace. His power, his promises, his hope, all those things are good to be familiar with. But they come too familiar to us when we take those things for granted. And we stop praying. And we stop coming to church. And we stop reading the Bible. And sometimes we don't even notice that we're doing that. Sometimes familiarity can be an obstacle 
to seeking him and to knowing him? What obstacles do you have to work through? Number three, Jesus' grace is scandalous. Uh, Jesus is moving through town. Let me say this. There's like two perspectives in this story. The first uh, handful of verses, it's the perspective of Zacchaeus uh, and how he experiences Jesus and the things that he has to deal with. But the last part of the story is really from the perspective of Christ and his perspective on Zacchaeus, his perspective on the crowds, and his perspective uh, certainly on his mission. And so you see Jesus walking through town. Crowds are around him. It's just, it's got to be chaos, I'm sure. And he gets to this spot and he says, Zacchaeus, I got to stay at your house. I don't know about you, but I read that and it's like, that's kind of bold. Like, how many times do you go up to somebody and say, hey, I'm having supper at your house tonight. You're going to make me a, a nice meal. I mean, we just don't do that. I think this is the only time that Jesus says that. I've got to stay at your place. And you think, well, why does he do that? I don't know if I have the ultimate answer, but an answer I've heard is he's a tax collector. He's on the outside. He's on, he may be wealthy and have a lot of power, but nobody likes him. If he was to go to a religious leader like this, a Jewish rabbi like Jesus is here, no rabbi is going to say yes. No rabbi is going to say, yes, I'd love to come over to your house, Zacchaeus, because that would, that would disgrace them. Uh, to have a meal like this communicates love. It communicates acceptance. It communicates this kind of fellowship. And so maybe it's Jesus saying, I know you're never going to ask me, and I know you have a desire to know me and to see me. And so I'm coming over to your house. I'm going to come over and spend time with you. And you can't miss the reaction of the crowds. They're scandalized. This is, I mean, it's not just the religious leaders who are crying out, but it's the whole, it's all of them. How could you spend time with this man? He's dirt. He's, he's trash. He's, he's nothing. And, and you are spending time with him. You're eating in his house. You're, you're eating his food. And by Jesus doing that, he's communicating acceptance. He's communicating love. And this community is scandalized by that. Jesus, you, you can't do that. And Jesus says, what? I came to seek and to save the lost. And Jesus accepts him for who he is in his situation. But you quickly see what? He doesn't leave Zacchaeus in that situation in the midst of the grace that he's pointing to him because spiritual change brings life change. You look at verse 8. Zacchaeus just seemingly just pops up says, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Sometime, you remember when Zacchaeus hears the invitation that Jesus is going to stay, he doesn't take it as he's going to condemn me. He's going to be mean to me. He's going to judge me. All this, he receives it with joy. He's like, this is incredible. This is great. I want you over here. And sometime in this conversation, Zacchaeus stands up and says, I'm going to make amends. I'm going to, I'm going to pay back what I should be paying back. Uh, the, the law said that um, they were required, if somebody was defrauded, they had to give back a more. They had to repay, but they had to give back more. If somebody stole an animal, for example, and they consumed that animal like it's a cow and they, they cooked it, um, they, not only would they have to pay back the cow, but you'd have to give up four or five times the value of that. And Zacchaeus is saying, I'm going to repay. 
I know what I've done. I know I've defrauded and I haven't been the best intentions. And now I'm going to pay it back. I'm going to give back to these people. I'm going to do this kind of change. It's like Zacchaeus is so moved by Christ, his ministry, his words, his gospel, his truth. And he has to do these things. He's moved to do these things. It's not a defense of what the crowds are saying about him, but it's a response to who Jesus is. Now, you may think that's just, that seems kind of over the top. I mean, it seems kind of extreme. I get, you know, wanting to, to move forward and, and to make some changes, but this seems very radical. And the only thing I can suggest is to see Jesus and who he is, you've got to see who you are. And when you see who you are, you see your sin, you see where you fall short. And, and you come to the point where it's like, you know, I can't explain that stuff away anymore. It, it's a big deal. And things have to change. And Zacchaeus is a picture of that, that change in response to Christ in the Gospels. And Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Let me close with just maybe the, the last lesson of, of Zacchaeus is this. Why has salvation come to this house Why is Jesus saying this? Salvation has come because Jesus has come. Jesus has come to that individual in a life-changing way. Evangelists who are engaged in evangelistic conversation will ask individuals some diagnostic questions, you know, to understand where they're coming from, what their experience with, with the Bible or religion or Christ, just to understand. And sometimes they'll ask, you know, uh, would, are you ready to call yourself a Christian? Are you willing to call yourself a Christian? Would you call yourself a Christian? And if an individual said to this evangelist, I, I think I'd be willing to call myself a Christian. I'm not, I don't feel very good. I don't feel like I'm good enough for God. But, I, yeah, I think I'd be willing to do that. When an evangelist hears that, it kind of tips them off to think, I don't think you're getting the gospel Because by that answer, when you say you're not good enough and there's some uncertainty there, you're you're still, in a sense, making it about yourself, what you do, your record, your achievements, um, you know, my good way out, my bad, all those kinds of things. And there's a sense of that's why he would accept me because of what I've done. But what Zacchaeus does for us and what Christ does for us in seeking and saving the lost and salvation has come to this house, to know him, to call ourselves a Christian means that Christ is in us, that we belong to him, that, that he has us. He knows my record. He knows what I've done, and he still accepts me, and he forgives me. There's this, again, go back to that, that picture of the crowds, and then we'll close in prayer. The crowds are irate. They are angry. They're heaping all this scorn, all this hatred over Jesus, the fact that he would do this. Isn't that why Christ came? Isn't that what the, the, the Old Testament points to, that he would be scorned for us, that he would suffer for us in our place? To be a Christian is to know that he did those things for us, to celebrate the depth of Advent, to know why Christ is to know him in your life. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you that you come to seek and save the lost. We are lost. 
We need you. We need your redemption. We need your love. We need your power. We are distracted and busy. We're overly familiar. Or we just are full of despair. But that flies in the face that you come to seek and to save the lost. Do you minister to us? Do you remind us of all that you are? In Christ's name, amen.